distinguished guests, brothers and sisters, ladies and gentlemen, friends and enemies. I want to point out first that I'm very happy to be here this evening, and I'm thankful for the invitation to come here to Detroit this evening. Uh, I was in a house last night that was by on my own, but I didn't, it didn't destroy all my clothes at all, but you know what happens when fire dashes through. They get smoky. The only thing I could get my hands on before leaving was what I have on now. And uh, it wasn't, it isn't something that made me lose confidence in what I'm doing because my wife understands and I have children from this size on down and even in their young age, they understand. I think they would rather have a father or brother or whatever the situation may be who will take a stand in the face of any kind of reaction from narrow-minded people uh, rather than to compromise and later on have to grow up in shame and in disgrace. So I just ask you to excuse my appearance. I don't normally come out in front of people without a uh, shirt and a tie. I guess that's somewhat a holdover from the black Muslim movement, which I was in. And that's one of the good aspects of that movement. It teaches you to be very careful and conscious of how you look, which is a, a positive contribution on their part. But that positive contribution on their part is greatly offset by too many other liabilities. Before I get involved in anything nowadays, I have to straighten out my own position. And which is clear, I am not a racist in any form whatsoever. I don't believe in any form of racism. I don't believe in any form of discrimination or segregation. I believe in Islam. I'm a Muslim. And there's nothing wrong with being a, being a Muslim, nothing wrong with the religion of Islam. That just teaches us to believe in Allah as the God. And those of you who are Christians probably believe in the same God. Because I think you believe in the God who created the universe and that's the one we believe in, the one who created the universe. The only difference being, you call him uh, God and, and I, we call him Allah. Jews call him Jehovah. If you could understand Hebrew, you'd probably call him Jehovah too. Uh, if you could understand Arabic, you'd probably call him Allah. But since, since the white man, your friend, took your language away from you during slavery, the only language you know is his language, you know, your friend's language. So you call him, you call for the same God he calls for. When he's putting a rope around your neck, you call for God, he calls for God. And you, and you wonder why the one you call on never answers you. And when I was in the black Muslim movement, I wasn't, they didn't have the real religion of Islam in that movement. It was something else. And, uh, but the real religion of Islam doesn't teach anyone to judge another human being by the color of his skin. The yardstick that is used by the Muslim to uh, measure another man is not the man's color, but the man's deeds, the man's conscious behavior, the man's intention. And when you use that as a standard of measurement or judgment, you never go wrong. But when you just judge a man because of the color of his skin, then you're committing a crime because that's the worst kind of judgment. If you judge him just because he was a Jew, that's not as bad as judging him because he's black because a Jew can hide his religion. He can say he's something else, which a lot of them do that. They say they're something else. 
But the black man can't hide. When they start indicting us because of our color, that means we're indicted before we're born, which is the worst kind of crime that can be committed. Elijah Muhammad had taught us that the white man could not enter into Mecca in Arabia, and all of us who followed him, we believed it. And he said the reason he couldn't enter was because he's white and inherently evil, and it's impossible to change him. And uh, the only thing that would change him is Islam, and he can't accept Islam because by nature he's evil. And therefore, by not being able to accept Islam and become a Muslim, he could never enter Mecca. And uh, this is how he taught us. And, you know, and so when I got over there and went to Mecca and saw these people who blonde and blue-eyed and pale skin and all those things, I said, well, but I, I watched them closely, and I noticed that there was, though they were white, and they would call themselves white, there was a difference between them and the white one over here. And that basic difference was this. Uh, in, the, in Asia or the Arab world or in Africa, where the Muslims are, if you find one who says he's white, uh, all he's doing is using an adjective which, to describe something that's in incidental about him, one of his inc incidental characteristics. So there's nothing else to it. He's just white. But when you get the white man over here in America and he says he's white, he means something else. You can listen to the sound of his voice when he says he's white. He means he's boss. That's right. That's what white means in this, in this language. You know the expression free, white, and 21. He made that up. He's letting you know all of them mean the same. White means free, boss. He's up there. So that when he says he's white, he has a little different sound in his voice. And I know you know what I'm talking about. Despite the fact that I saw that Islam was a religion of brotherhood, I also had to face reality. And when I get back into this American society, I'm not in a society that practices brotherhood. I'm in a society that might preach it on Sunday, but they don't practice it in, on no day, on any day. And so since I could see that America itself is a society where there is no brotherhood, and that this society is controlled primarily by racists, and segregationist, and it is. Uh, this is a society whose government doesn't hesitate to inflict the most brutal form of punishment and oppression upon dark-skinned people all over the world. Uh, to wit, right now, what's going on in in uh, near uh, in and around Saigon and Hanoi, and in the Congo, and in and in elsewhere, they are violent when their interests are at stake. But that, with all of that violence that they display at the international level, when you and I want just a little bit of freedom, we're supposed to be nonviolent. They're violent. They're violent in Korea. They're violent in Germany. They're violent in the South Pacific. They're violent in Cuba. They're violent wherever they go. But when it comes time for you and me to protect ourselves against lynchers, they tell us to be nonviolent. We should defend ourselves. And when I say that we should defend ourselves against the violence of others, they, they use their press skillfully to make the world think that I'm calling on violence, period. And I wouldn't call on anybody to be violent uh, without a cause. But I think the black man in this country, above and beyond people all over the world, it will be more justified when he stands up and starts to protect himself, no matter how many necks he has to break and heads he has to crack. I saw in the paper where the 
in the on the television where they took this black woman down in Selma, Alabama, and knocked her right down on the ground, dragging her down the street. You saw it. You trying to pretend like you didn't see it because you knew you should have done something about it and didn't. Uh, it showed the sheriff and his henchmen throwing this black woman on the ground. On the ground. And Negro men standing around doing nothing about it. Saying, well, let's overcome them with our capacity to love. What kind of uh, phrase is that? overcome them with our capacity to love. And then it disgraces the rest of us because all over the world the picture is flashed showing a black woman with, a, with some white brutes with their knees on her holding her down and black, full-grown black men standing around watching it. Why, you are lucky they let you stay on earth, much less stay in the country. When I saw it, I dispatched a wire to Rockwell. Rockwell was one of the agitators down there. Rockwell, this Lincoln Rockwell. And the wire said, in essence, that this is to warn him that I am no longer held in check from fighting white supremacists by Elijah Muhammad's separatist black Muslim movement. And that if Rockwell's presence in Alabama causes harm to come to Dr. King or any other uh, black person in Alabama who's doing nothing other than trying to uh, enjoy their rights, then Rockwell and his Ku Klux Klan friends would be met with maximum retaliation from those of us who are not handcuffed by this nonviolent philosophy. And I haven't heard from Rockwell since. <laughs> and brothers and sisters, if you and I would just realize that once we learn to talk the language that they understand, they will then get the point. You can never reach a man if you don't speak his language. If a man speaks the language of brute force, you can't come to him with peace. Why, good night. He'll break you in two as he has been doing all along. Uh, if a man speaks French, you can't speak to him in German. If he speaks Swahili, you can't communicate with him in Chinese. You have to find out what does this man speak. And once you know his language, you learn how to speak his language. And he'll get the point. There'll be some dialogue, some communication, and some understanding will be developed. And uh, you've been in this country long enough to know the language the Klan speaks. They only know one language. And what you and I have to start doing in 1965, I mean, that's what you have to do, because most of us already been doing it, is start learning a new language. Learn the language that they, that, they, that they understand. And then when they come up on our doorstep to talk, we can talk. <laughs> and they will get the point. There will be a dialogue. There'll be some communication, and I'm quite certain they will, there will then be some understanding. Why? Because the Klan is a cowardly outfit. They have, they have uh, perfected the art of making Negroes be afraid. And as long as the Negro's afraid, the Klan is safe. But the Klan itself is coward. They, they never come, one of them never come after one of you. 
They all come together. Strange. They're scared of you. And you sit there when they put the rope around your neck saying, forgive them, Lord. They know not what they do. As long as they've been doing it, they're experts at it. They know what they're doing. No, since the federal government has shown that it isn't going to do anything about it, but talk, then it is a duty. It's your and my duty as men, as human beings. It's, the, it's our duty to our people to organize ourselves and let the government know that if they don't stop that clan, we'll stop it ourselves. And then you'll see the government start doing something about it. But don't ever think that they're going to do it just on some kind of morality basis. No. We only mean vigorous action in self-defense. And that vigorous action, we feel, we're justified in initiating by any means necessary. And when we say this, the press calls us racist in reverse. With skillful manipulating of the press, they're able to make the victim look like the criminal and the criminal look like the victim. Right now, when in New York, uh, we had a couple cases where police grabbed the brother and beat him unmercifully, and then charged him with assaulting them. They used the press to make it look like he's the criminal and they're the victim. This is how they do it. And if you study how they do it here, then you'll know how they do it over here. It's the same game going all the time. And if you and I don't awaken and see what this man is doing to us, then it'll be too late. They may have the gas ovens already built before you realize that they're hot.